Well, if you're just joining us, we have been in the New Testament letter, 2 Peter. And it's a short letter, but essentially what we have is Peter's last will and testament. He's gotten older, persecutions have erupted, and he knows his time is just about up. And so he writes a letter to warn and encourage the church in the event, likely event, the near event that he is going to pass away and go to be with the Lord. And so 2 Peter is like, remember this, remember this. But it's not just for people to hear about 2,000 years ago. It's for the church to remember. And 2,000 years later, as we read the words that were penned in that moment in his life, they're still transforming us because what they are doing is uprooting lies and establishing truth. 2 Peter was written primarily as a correction of lies that had spread in the Greco-Roman world to the churches. Remember, 2,000 years ago, the church doesn't have 2,000 years of orthodoxy to build on. It doesn't have like a proven track record. This is, in all, for all intents and purposes, a brand new thing that's growing. And the apostles have the difficult job of having to manage and sort of police what is the truth about the message of Jesus and what is actually a lie. And so 2 Peter begins with the powerful statement, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us according to his own glory and goodness. Do you want to know why 2 Peter starts that way? It's because Peter is correcting a lie. He didn't come up with that line out of thin air, and if he did, it would be beautiful and God-inspired like all of Scripture is. But he, he comes up with that line because he's correcting a lie that is spreading in the church, and that lie is this. Because of the grace of God, this is what some teachers were teaching, because the grace of God has replaced the law of the Old Testament, we no longer have to obey God. Pauline teaching, you read the book of Romans, we are no longer under the law, but under grace. And false teachers were spinning this, so to say that if grace has replaced the law, now when we disobey God, God's grace only increases so we can do whatever we want. And when the people would double down and go, yeah, but Jesus is returning. The apostles are telling us that he's coming again. And when he comes back, we don't want to be found just doing whatever we want all the time. What about that? And then false teaching broke out that Jesus' second coming was actually not going to happen. So 2 Peter was written to correct those two lies. Lie number one, you can do whatever you want because God is gracious. And lie number two, Jesus is never really coming back. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, what we're going to read today, we're going to read an explicit correction of some of the worst false teaching in the entire story of scripture. But before we get there, I want to give you the title of this sermon. The title of this sermon is called Free from Lies. Free from Lies. Some of y'all writing that down. I want you to look at somebody next to you and tell them, don't lie to me. Don't lie to me. What's so funny, when I choose a line like that, that's kind of heavy to say, it's so funny to watch married couples. Because you just see, like, the tension bubbling of, okay, what happened there? And let's set you guys up with, with this counselor over here. Because, like, there were some moments at the 845, even as I looked around right before I said it, I was, like, picking a couple of out, a couple out and, then, and I'm sorry if there's a conversation for later. But I want to talk about the power of being freed from lies in the Christian life. True freedom as a Christian is more about getting free from lies than it is about getting free from committing sin. Adam and Eve, story of sin being introduced in the world, began with a lie that was believed, not with a sin that was committed. 
The sin was committed after the lie was believed. It was the assault on the character of God, the questioning of God's intentions, and the temptation of the fruit that was in front of Eve that led her to make the decision that leads to sin breaking out, that leads to all kind of consequences. Sin is the reason why death exists. It's the reason why divorce exists. It's the reason why addiction exists. It's the reason why war and political tension and racial tension and anger and hate and unforgiveness and slavery, every evil that you can think of goes all the way back to this moment where mankind rebels against God. And that rebellion is rooted in the willingness to believe a lie. So true freedom is not about getting your act together and fixing your actions. It's about walking in the truth that replaces the lies that can be so tempted to believe. So I want to establish this truth at the beginning of this sermon, and you can write this down. What truly holds us captive is not the sins we commit, but the lies we believe. True slavery in the Christian life is not just about what you're doing wrong. It's about the belief and the agreement you made in your mind with something evil and followed through with that led to a lifestyle of slavery. What holds you captive is not just the sins you commit, but the lies you believe. And the reason why that's a problem in church today is because so many of us have grown up pursuing God on the basis of fixing our behavior. Once I get this area of my life figured out, once I stop doing that, once I start doing that and I adopt these practices instead of those practices, but if all of your life is the management of action replacement from doing this to doing this, you miss out on the root that's actually about uprooting what lie you agreed to in the first place that led to the behavior. What holds us captive, it's not necessarily the sins we commit, it's the lies we believe. And the reason why we are so susceptible to believe lies is because Lies promise freedom. We don't believe lies because we're dumb and just want misinformation. Some of y'all are, and you need to stop on social media and stuff. I, I got to be honest. Some of the misinformation that goes out constantly, it's like, really? You, you, okay, you read that person who shared that, and I'm sorry, it's fresh for me because I've just seen a lot of things in the last couple of weeks where I put my head down, and I'm like, it's not, it's not even close to true. But our culture has gotten used to to getting all over misinformation, and it fuels emotion from within. So some of us, uh, do we have like an Amber Alert going out? Sorry. No, just uh, infection of phones. It's fine. Um, that's like, okay, two fears about preaching. One, getting the hiccups. It's never happened. And the other one is, what if we all got an Amber Alert at the same time? Like, that'd be so scary, mid-sermon. Is that happening right now? We're good? Okay. Um, <laughs> But like that, that seriously scares me. Stop, Miles. Don't believe the lies. Walk in freedom. Um, we don't, listen, we don't believe lies because we just like agreeing with things that are false. We believe lies because freedom is promised. And part of the reason why there's a group in this room and a group watching online who have become enslaved to countless sin struggles over time is because we've never taken account for why do I want to believe a lie in the first place? The reason why a lie promises freedom is because most of the enemy's lies are not 100% lies. They're more like half-truths or 90% truths or a good desire you have within you and a cheap substitute offered by the enemy that has more of an immediate effect to numb your pain, but in the long run always, always, always leads to more slavery. So if you're here today and you got a particular area of your life that's enslaving you, 
It could be a sexual thing. It could be a substance issue. It could be a relationship. It could be an anxiety thing. It could be a go-to pet sin you have that you're like, when I'm having an issue, I go to this thing to make me feel better, and it's not that big of a deal. We are preaching a message of freedom that looks like being set free from the noose of being controlled by lies from the enemy that I think for a lot of us took root a long time before we even discovered we had a problem. The vision of today is true Christian freedom, and I think it can happen. I think because I've tasted it in my own life. I think you can live the Christian life free from any and all agreements you have made with evil. It is hard. It takes work. That's, by the way, that's not going to happen on July 10th, 2022, because we have a cool service. That's going to happen when a church-wide community gets serious about sanctification over time and freedom becoming a norm and a way of life. But the vision of today, I believe people are going to be freed from things where you've left church services for years believing you were going to find freedom in the way you changed your behavior, and it didn't work out. I think we're going to see it from the word of God because Jesus said, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There's freedom to be found in the scriptures, even the hardest scriptures to make sense of and to stomach, which we're going to read today. If you brought your Bible to church, hold it up. Hold it up. I've gotten some feedback that single people are a little tired of the poll taking and they're going, hey, it's enough. It's, a, it's enough the last couple of weeks. We're going to go classic Bible drill today. If you would like to remove yourself from the single person Bible drill, turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. Everybody else, Bible's high in the air. Okay, this is what drives me crazy. So many of y'all are on the same row. And I'm like, you could have a conversation. This could, a couple in the back, I see that hand. I want to, I, I see that hand. I want to acknowledge you because I acknowledged someone from the last one just because I felt like the Holy Spirit was leading, but I don't want you to have to yell from there. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. Y'all are bold holding up your Bibles that long, by the way, especially when you don't know what I'm going to say or if I might address you individually, but that is all for the purpose of conversations that flow in the lobby and outside in the burning hot Alabama summer after the gathering. 2 Peter 2. Okay, I want to warn you, this is no one's favorite chapter in the Bible. When you ask someone, what, what scripture do you love reading? Oh, 2 Peter 2. It's no, no, no one's ever going to say that. In fact, I, I listened to a pastor this week who preached a sermon 30 years ago on this passage, and he told his church, he said, listen, this is not going to be fun, but not all medicine tastes good. You need this. We need this. It's not going to be fun to power through this passage. There's a lot of intense imagery that's going to be given. But I want you to know, maybe, maybe we neglect the passage that, passages that offer us the most freedom because they're hard to stomach and because they're hard to really figure out what the author is trying to say. And maybe the freedom that a lot of us have been looking for in our go-to favorite passages, that nothing's wrong with that, can actually be discovered when we dig deeper in the Word of God. We're going to talk about false teaching, and right off the bat, Peter's going to come out swinging. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, if you're there, say, I'm there. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. I'm not going to power through 22 straight verses. I'm going to read a little bit and explain it as I go. Some of the sections will be longer than others. We've got to stop right here. If he comes out saying, but, at the beginning of a chapter... You need to know what he said before that. 
And what is he disagreeing with on the back end? What sentence is he finishing? And if you don't know that, you probably missed church last week. And I know it was July 4th weekend, a lot of people out of town. You need to go back because Peter established at the beginning of chapter 1 that the word of God was given by the Holy Spirit to the holy prophets. He says, I'm telling you the truth because I was with Jesus. I was an eyewitness to his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And I wrote things down, we wrote things down. But then the prophets of old, just because they weren't eyewitnesses to Jesus doesn't mean it wasn't God speaking. The Holy Spirit carried them. And so what he's doing is he's elevating the word of God, going, we listen to the word of God because it's God speaking. But then he says, but there were also false prophets. In the Old Testament, the prophets spoke the word of God, but there were also false ones. False ones who were willing to sell their information to kings if they delivered a message that may or may not be true. False ones that wanted to be more popular with the people than they wanted to be faithful to what God told them. And what does Peter say? Pay attention to this. There were, past tense, false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among the people. What is he doing there? He's drawing a line between false prophets and true prophets in the Old Testament and false teachers and true teachers in the church of the New Testament. You see it? There were false prophets there, and now there will be false teachers. And it turns out, what we're going to read in the next few verses, they're already out there and teaching like crazy. Verse 2, many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Peter is coming out swinging. And he literally traces the Old Testament pattern of God executing judgment on those who are unrighteous and sparing those who are faithful. And he reaches at the beginning all the way back to something happened before Adam and Eve were even around. For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell. And he progresses to say, hey, God's patient and gracious, but you need to know he's got a track record of holding people accountable. And he's speaking against false teachers saying, hey, they think they can get away with lying to people. They think they can get away with these false messages. They think they can steal people's money. They just need to know God will not relent forever. God will eventually execute judgment on those who are separated from him and give mercy to those who are close to him. Notice both. He spares some, but he brings the judgment as well. And I know it's not comfortable to read, but we need to. It then says, bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Yet even angels 
Although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. This is a verse that you read on your own time and you're like, what? I have, Chris, can you turn me up like just a little bit, just slightly? This is a verse that you read on your own time and you're like, I have no idea what I just read about celestial beings and angels, but I need help interpreting this. And a lot of people are confused by what Peter means here, but I think what he's doing is he's reaching on the angels that got thrown out of heaven a long time ago. And he's going, these false teachers are so bold and so arrogant that they're willing to look down upon those who were thrown out of heaven with an attitude of arrogance and with an attitude of I'm better than them when angels who are still in heaven aren't even willing to do that. You see it? It's like they're so bold. They're so arrogant. They're so missing the way. And these people, go to verse 12, blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like animals, they too will perish. They will be paid back for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed, in a cursed brood. That's the first time I've said that word. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. What is happening in this chapter? Y'all look up here and stay with me, stay with me, stay with me. This is when Peter is pointing out why he's so fired up. These false teachers teaching those two things I told you, God doesn't care if we obey him and Jesus is not coming back. They would actually slide in to churches pretending to be genuine converts of Jesus and would join in with what was called the love feast. When the church gathered 2,000 years ago, they didn't sit in rows and listen to a speaker. They had a meal on Sunday nights that they called communion, taking of the Lord's Supper. In in the Greco-Roman world, a lot of people thought Christians were cannibals because they wanted to do this love feast where they ate the body and drank the blood, and they were always taking babies that got discarded and taking care of them. So they thought, oh, they're they're cannibals, and, and that's what they do because these feasts were getting larger and larger and larger. So what... What the false teachers would do is sneak into these genuine feasts where the church is coming together to celebrate Jesus and love on one another. And they go and, okay, they carouse in the daylight. Peter means they're willing to do during the day what sinners are only willing to do at night. With eyes full of adultery and greed, they seduce the unstable. Here's what they would do. They would try to spot new converts who were particularly vulnerable pull them aside to a private meeting and charge them money for the teaching that they needed to be truly set free in their faith. And that teaching was, we can do whatever we want because God forgives us in Jesus. So they charge money, take their money, and then they would also target couples that they could break apart by exploiting them sexually. So if one of the false teachers was like, I want to sleep with that guy's wife, Invite them to the secret teaching, teach, or charge them money, 
provide this teaching and then try to get them to revel in a way of drunkenness and orgies and the worst things you can think of happening in the church. This is happening underneath Peter and Paul's nose as they're trying to spread the gospel to a lost, dark, and broken world. So if you ever read chapters like this and you go, calm down, Peter, he does not need to calm down. He's got a lot to correct. Paul's got a lot to correct. James has a lot to correct. This is why the writers of the New Testament, if they ever seem like, man, they are feisty about teaching the truth about the word of God, it is because stuff like this is happening to vulnerable new believers. And Peter's going, they will be judged. Oh, man, they might think they're getting away with it right now, but God has a track record. He will hold the unrighteous accountable if they do not repent. And then he goes on and pronounces that they are like Balaam, son of Bezer. Who is Balaam? Balaam was a prophet in Numbers 24, 25, and 26 from Moab. And Balaam took money in exchange for prophesying things that would be more favorable towards certain kings. And while he's on the way to execute one of these prophecies, his donkey stops and talks to him and out loud rebukes him. And so Peter calls him Balaam, son of Bezer. This is just a cool Bible fact for all the Bible nerds in here. You're going to love this. Such a savage move by Peter. Peter. Peter calls him Balaam, son of Bezer. Bezer's not Balaam's dad's name. Balaam's dad is Beor. But Peter puts a Hebrew spin on his name that means flesh. So he literally calls him Balaam, son of the flesh. And is insulting him and going, they have gone that way. They're willing to do this for money and for their own satisfaction. And he's calling them out. Verse 17. We're almost there, guys. These people are springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words. And by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. End of chapter two. Peter ends this section with the most scathing words for these men and says, it would be better if they never heard about Jesus at all. Why does he say that? He's going, you're lost in your sin or you hear about Jesus, genuinely come to saving faith and then end up living the rest of your life deceiving people who you're bringing to hell with you. It would be better if you never heard about Jesus in the first place than if you brought a thousand people with you down your road of destruction. That's what he's saying. And he ends it by saying a dog returns to its vomit and essentially a pig that gets washed goes right back in the dirt. This is who they are and this is what they do. Now, a couple of statements to make before we really jump into how this applies to us. God takes the teaching of his word in his church very seriously. Teachers among any other position in the church are held to the highest standard by God. This isn't fun for me to say, by the way. 
It's like, I'm going I'm to be judged to a higher standard than you guys in heaven. Who's excited? Y'all should all be encouraged. I'm nervous. And, um, but I just need to tell you that. God is serious about the teaching of his word. And he's not just serious about it 2,000 years ago when the church was vulnerable. He's just as serious about it today. And if you think, man, false teachers, like we don't have people walking around our rows, tapping people on the shoulder going, hey, you want to come to my house and pay 50 bucks and me tell you something that's actually not true? No, that's not happening here. But what is happening here is we have a culture of YouTube and TikTok and Instagram where pastors can become more well-known in their teachings for saying things that sound good to people, that get more shares and get more clicks. And we got some of you who have been coming to this church and growing in your knowledge of God, not even knowing that you are listening to men and to women who are telling you half-truths or straight-up untruths about who God is. At ACC, we have got to become more protective of who we let influence our view of God. And I'm not saying that to prop myself up. Y'all know, I try to the best of my ability with my limited knowledge and make mistakes often to just get out of the way of the word of God every week. Because I don't have anything to say. This is what I'm trying to preach. And I don't always get it right. But there are plenty of men who all over this country and all over the world know that a slight twist here or distortion here or more focus here than here can appeal to more people and create destruction in their lives because all they care about is their church growth and their bank account. And I just, I'm not saying this to them out there. This is me shepherding our church and going, that's real. That's happening out there. And more than it's going to happen at a place that you visit, it's going to happen in the palm of your hand. You need to become more selective with the voices who you allow to influence tell you about who Jesus is. And if you need help with that, that's what the church exists to do. I know we got some new believers who are like, I, I don't know. I just click on the first thing I see and it sounds like it's about Jesus. And it's, I know, I know what it's like to be vulnerable in your faith. And I know we have a lot of believers like that, but that's why it's good that we have seasoned believers here who can help you and guide you and make sure you're getting built up on the truth that is the word of God. But the second thing I need to say about this, on the one hand, we need to be serious about hearing from the word. On the other hand, we don't need to become paranoid and crazy about this area. And this is a major problem in Auburn that I didn't know moving here eight years ago because it's not as big of a problem in the metro Atlanta area. But there are people who are more obsessed with policing theology and orthodoxy than they are serious about living according to the way of Jesus. And they're divisive and they're unhealthy and they're bad for the body of Christ. And some of them are here sitting among us right now. At this church, I told you, we're going to do everything we can to be faithful to the Bible, to be true to our convictions. But we're not going to become paranoid and annoying. And, and there's something that happens to people, and I can speak to this because I was like this. When you start going deeper in your knowledge of the scriptures and you start learning more about theology and church history, what it can do is your genuine pursuit of Jesus has a flesh part of it where you become prideful about what you're learning. And now suddenly you know more than everyone else around you and every sermon is wrong and that church is wrong and my way is the only way to get it right. And when this culture starts to seep out among our people, we cause division where there needs to be health and harmony. We can't do that. We'll not do that. Y'all know we've had really good people, people who I love, leave our church because I've quoted someone in a sermon who they don't align with theologically. If, if that's your style, I'm just telling you, this is probably not the church for you. 
And not everyone I quote do I align with. Oh, I align with everything he said or in this sermon one time. Y'all, if we start doing that, the only words we're going to have left to teach are the words in the Sermon on the Mount. Like everybody who writes in scripture has something in their story that you could point at and go, yeah, but what about this and what about that? The point is not to become paranoid and look at the words on the screen during the song. Yeah, I don't agree with that. Oh, yeah, it's a little bit, oh, it's kind of weak. And uh, I don't know about that point. Let, Let me just save you from yourself for a second. I've been there. When I started learning at 19, 20, and 21, I thought, oh, every, everything I've ever learned in church was wrong, and now I've got it right. And I remember sitting at a conference, unable to enjoy the worship or even listen to the sermon, because all I was doing was critiquing everything that was happening in real time. And I just looked down, and I was like, I, this isn't good. This isn't righteous. I'm sick, and I need help, God. So I, I say this with the passion that I say it with because I've been one of those guys before. Don't be like that. Yes, let's be serious. Yes, let's hold the word of God. But let's not be paranoid and let's not let our culture become a culture of fear and division. Okay. That's the pastoral word over the whole church and now the word to you specifically. And I believe that the next 13 and a half minutes could be the most important 13 and a half minutes that we have in church all year because it was at the last gathering. 2 Peter 2 is not intended to warn you in case someone invites you to their house and teaches you heresy. It's not going to happen. But 2 Peter 2 is intended to tell you why lies are so attractive and why so many fall away so easily. And the key to seeing it in our context right now is in verse 18. Look there. Let me read this. You want to pay attention for this. For they, the false teachers, mouth empty, boastful words. And by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. Do you notice this? Here's how the false teachers get their lies across. Not just the false teachers. Here's how Satan and sin gets their lie across by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh. They promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. The reason why lies are attractive is because they promise you something that you really genuinely want. They have a good offer on the surface. And here's the thing, because you're a sinner, even if you're filled by the Holy Spirit, you still live in the flesh of this broken body. You have desires that have been distorted and disordered by your sinful condition. And so here's how abusive the devil is. Here's how manipulative he is. He tailors his lies where you can most be exploited. He doesn't tell you random lies that you don't care about. He doesn't go, oh yeah, I was just thinking about it the other day and cats are actually awesome. No, that's a lie, but it's a lie that doesn't matter, okay? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say some meaningless fact that you're like, no, I don't know if that's true. He lies to you about something that you already have a bend to believe because it's something that in your flesh, your sin is calling out to be fulfilled. What is the flesh? The flesh is the animalistic part of you that just wants desire fulfilled. More than anything, you want dopamine to give you pleasure in your brain. Dopamine is a chemical that fires on the basis of novel information, something you didn't see coming, or some type of pleasurable experience, but most of those experiences are quick and cheap. Eating a piece of candy, eating dessert, 
getting a, a, a notification on social media, some, some type of sexual gratification. It's good, and it feels good, but it's just like a second of your brain firing. Your flesh, more than anything, will capitalize on that part of your biology and go, where can we tie your brain firing to something that will enslave you? And if that issue happens to be sexual, then over time, your brain will become a minefield where the enemy can have his way and tie your desire for something good, genuine connection and pleasurable experiences to something that will enslave you outside of God's design. Doesn't have to be sexual. Could be a substance. And if it is a substance, don't just think, oh, I've got a drinking problem or I've got a drug problem. Think, no, when I can't cope with reality, I go to blank. When I can't cope, I need that. And what does it do? It fires a chemical in my brain that I think over time is just like a pet sin that I bring up when I need it. But actually, you don't have that thing on a leash. That thing has you on a leash. And you're over time building these systems of thinking in your brain where here's what you do. The progression goes like this. The, the lie promises freedom. You bite, and the slavery gets tighter and tighter. That's what happened to Eve. Why did Eve? eat the fruit after she figured out she was being lied to. Think about this. Did you know Eve corrected the serpent? No one talks about this. And this hit me this week because I feel like we've been preaching something incomplete to all of you. For years, we've been telling you, you got to know what lies you believe because they hold you captive. And then you got to know the truth of God's word to replace the lie. That's a good message. I've preached that. Gage has preached that. But it's incomplete. It's not enough to just know what lie you believe and what truth replaces the lie. you got to know, what is it about the lie that has become so attractive, and why am I susceptible to it, and how do I prevent it? So what got Eve? Serpent says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree? She corrects him. No, no, he didn't say that. He said we can't eat from this tree because we'll surely die. That's the word of God she quoted. It's possible to know it's a lie and know the truth and still get duped. What got Eve? She saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye, good for food, pleasurable for gaining knowledge and wisdom. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Same three temptations that Satan brought to Jesus, by the way. It was something distorted on the back end of agreeing with a lie. Because after, watch this, after Eve corrected the enemy, he kept talking. He keeps talking. Until you go all the way to the source. You will not surely die. God knows that after you eat it, your knowledge will be on his level. He's scared of you. It's, it's an assault on the character of God. And that's when she bites. And that's when she notices. It's because she saw on the front end, no, that's not true. This is true. But then, when the lie ultimately took root in her heart, it's because in her mind, she made an agreement about the character of God that wasn't true. And the desires of her flesh ended up getting satisfied for something God did not give for that. And so what, what, what is our way around this? Our way is, ACC, it's not enough to just know what lies do I believe and what's the truth about those lies. We have to go to a place where we know why do I believe the lies that I believe? Why do I need to talk bad about somebody to prop myself up? Why do I need to talk that way in a conversation? Why do I need to stay up worrying and researching things that aren't even important and I'm losing sleep and my ability to be joyful the next day? Why do I need five episodes on Netflix? Why do I need more porn? Why do I need more gratification? Why do I need two other drinks? Why? Why do I need this? What is it about my desires that are being fulfilled 
when I take this bite. And the only way you can get motivated enough is when you feel the noose of that slavery get so tight and you admit to yourself that you are not owning this thing. This thing is owning you. By the way, every time I bring a message like this, our minds go to, oh, that's for alcoholics. It's for porn addicts. It's for boyfriend, girlfriend going too far. It's for somebody who's really like struggling with anxiety, like needs medication. No, 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 no. Some of the people in this room who are under the tightest nooses are the people who don't know there's a noose around their neck because they're looking at everybody else's and going, mine's not that bad. And it's actually the enemy in you going, yeah, yours is not that bad. That's the lie that has you captive is that you think you're good. I told our leadership team before today, I said, you know, this is the message I'm bringing. And then I stopped and I was like, most of you are ashamed right now because you're here to pray over everybody who's about to attend church. But 95% of you are struggling with something that this sermon's going to deal with. And you just need to admit, it's not for them, it's for you. It's to get you free. It's to get you to a place where you're actually walking in the freedom that is yours. And here's how it happens. I'm telling you it's possible. It happens when you stop dealing with sin after the fact. Paul tells us, put to death, crucify what belongs to the flesh, your old nature, so that the Holy Spirit can come alive in and through your life. If all you're ever doing is apologizing and repenting after you sin, you are in a binge purge cycle of shame where your denial of the fact that you have an issue is being appeased by a plan to get better that is never actually going to happen. You're in a cycle of bondage and you don't even know it. The only way out is stop apologizing and repenting after the fact and start learning how to crucify the flesh before you get attacked. And here's how it happens. I'm going to preach this next statement for the next year at our church to remind our people. It's not going to be the only time you hear this, but you can write it down if you just want to get bored later. It goes like this. Our response to the sins we commit is repentance. Our response to the lies we believe is mortification. Our response to the sins we commit is repentance. So you, you step over a boundary that God gives you. You go down a road that you're not supposed to go down. I believe in repentance. It's Jesus' message. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Repentance is what happens when the sorrow and the guilt of your sin starts to overrule your conscience and your identity is speaking to you and it's the Holy Spirit going, this is not who you are. Repentance is a beautiful thing. It's awesome. But for most of you, it's all you've ever done. And it's how you go Sunday to Sunday or conference to conference or book to book or sermon to sermon, making yourself feel better every time you hear a new message and recommit your life to Christ and go right back to before. Because all you do is repent for what you did lately and you've never learned this word called mortification. To mortify your flesh is to put to death the desire in you beforehand so that when you're tempted, you can walk in freedom. This is a grace that God has given to us, and this is something that we have to learn to obey because the same chapter, Galatians 5, where Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You know what he says later? Put to death, therefore, what belongs to your flesh and walk by the power of the Spirit. The freedom that God has for you is not a freedom to do whatever you want. Because people who do whatever they want are only enslaved to the desires that have mastered them. Freedom, and, and as Americans, we got to hear this, freedom is not the absence of authority. Freedom is living in submission to the one authority who has your best in mind, being God. So when you admit that, here's what you do. You crucify the flesh so that deeper desires can be built into your soul and fulfilled. Your strongest desires are your desires for sin. 
But your deepest desires are your desires for the Holy Spirit to fill you and live the life you were born to live. And if you don't believe me, this is wired into you biologically. Remember I told you earlier about dopamine? How dopamine is that cheap hit that you get when you, when you look at your phone, you get a notification, you get a text, you get some kind of gratification, some kind of dessert. It's quick, right? And it feels good. God designed it to be that way. There's another substance that fires in your brain when you experience real happiness and life satisfaction, and it's called serotonin. Serotonin is different because when you experience dopamine, here's what you think. I like that. I want more. When you experience serotonin, it's a satisfaction and contentment that where you say, I have all that I need. I'm good. And that is where true joy is found. That's godliness with contentment being great gain. Serotonin is what hits you after you do a long workout. And you're like, man, I feel like sort of like this high after doing that because you're going. And you're not like wanting for something else. It's like this peace. Dopamine is that rush of I had it. It was good. And I want more. I had it. It was good. And I want more. And some of you don't know this, but your brains have become fried on dopamine. And the overtime transformation of your life has to be a system where God uses pleasure and happiness in your life in a way to sanctify you instead of destroy you. God gave us that dopamine hit, by the way. He did that to make experiences that he loves, like eating food and us having sex with our spouses and so many different things. He did that to make it more pleasurable because he's a God of pleasure. What does the enemy do? Takes a good thing. Oh, they got that desire. I'll pull it out of God's context and without them even noticing, the freedom that I promise will become a tighter and tighter noose. And I'm announcing to you today, this is good news. Freedom is possible. It is if you're here and you're believing the lie, I've heard this sermon before, I've done the deal. No, you haven't. Because true mortification is possible. What does it mean to mortify my flesh? I want to teach you how. And this is all I got with 47 seconds. I might go over. Um, here's the whole message. I got one point. This is how you mortify your flesh. Grace plus community equals freedom. Grace plus community equals freedom. How do I kill that within me that does not bring God glory? The first step is getting out of your denial structures. You're in denial because you think the next time's going to work. You're in denial because you think you got this thing under control. The grace of God is when you admit that you are powerless to change. And the things in our lives and in our brains and in our spirits that have, that have gotten so tight and so enslaving are in areas that maybe we haven't truly admitted how much we need God to make a change. If you've ever tried to truly change and be transformed in an area of your life, you know your willpower is strong for a day or a week or a month. If you don't know that, students, and I know y'all just went to camp this summer, youth camp is a great example. Go away to tides. God feels so close while you're out there on the beach. Come home already. You've been home for a little while, and you feel the battles come back up. But the willpower was so strong when we were in North Carolina on the beach, and now I'm at home. What happened? It's because the root of your faith was never intended to be the willpower that you conjure up. You can white-knuckle something for a day or a week or a couple of weeks, but you cannot sustain a spiritual life of transformation doing that. Well, what's the alternative? The grace of God. See, the grace of God is not just there to forgive you for the things that you did wrong. The grace of God is there to empower you to walk in freedom. And the first step to getting free in an area you've become enslaved is to bow your head before God and admit that up to you, you will never get free. You'll never stop. You'll never figure it out. And there's beauty in this. 
Because in admitting that you need God's grace, you put yourself in a position to receive it. In admitting how much you need him to change, you get your heart in a position to accept what you did before. And there's a lot of other steps here, but you have to start with Holy Spirit, if it's up to me today, I will not be able to do this. If you are who you say you are and you're living on the inside of me, connecting me to Jesus, I don't just need you to tell me that I'm forgiven. That's beautiful. I need you to give me the strength to walk in the freedom that was bought for me on that cross. You pray that prayer, it's getting one answer, yes, from God. The Holy Spirit fills you. But too often, we've had church services where we feel the grace of God. God forgives you. Holy Spirit empowers you. Go. And the same thing keeps happening over and over again. And it's because God created his grace to coexist in the context of community. Meaning sustained life change takes more than you and the Holy Spirit figuring it out. You need the body of Christ, the church. You know the, our middle name, Auburn Community Church, the word church translated means community. It means the name of our church is Auburn Community Community. ACC still works. Um, but we, we skip this step. And we don't remember that James said, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. I think confession is a lost art in the church because of how bad the Catholic church butchered it. So we go, oh, we're not going to go into confession with the priest and we're not going to. No, 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 no. It's about living life on life with another human being, with another group, and being so out in the open with your stuff that you're free to not hide anymore. What did Adam and Eve do when God showed up? They ran and hide. What could they have done if they knew the truth about him? They could have exposed, here I am, here I am. And I'm not saying you do that in front of the whole world. There are right and wrong ways to do this, but I experienced this middle part more than ever before on sabbatical. I'm sitting at a Starbucks with my seminary professor who I love and respect. I've talked about him often. He's a huge mentor and he's like, talking about all different things that we're learning from the scriptures. And a couple hours in, he starts laughing. And he says, Miles, I just, if I, if I have the freedom to say something a little bit bold to you, I'm like, of all people, you have the freedom. Like, you and my wife, please, say something. And he goes, I think you put, I think you put way too much weight on your one-on-one -on -one time with God. And I was like, is that possible? Like, because I, I get in front of you all the time. I'm like, you got to get alone with God. You got to let God speak to you and live out of the overflow. It's what Jesus did. He got alone with his father, and then he did miracles. You need to create that rhythm of getting alone with God. And he's like, yeah, 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 all that's good. He's like, what you're not paying attention to is the fact that the New Testament teaches that the Holy Spirit shows up where there's commonality. That's what community means, by the way, commonality. He said, I believe you can experience 10, 20, 50 times more multiplied over in the presence of other people, what you could experience one-on-one -on -one with God. So yeah, have, yes, have your one-on-one -on -one time with God. But understand that the Holy Spirit moves where there's commonality and there is power in being out in the open with a group of people. That's what the church exists to do. This is the safest place in the world for people to be broken. And you know what else? It's gotta be a safe place for the pastor to be broken. So I went from that coffee meeting over to Woodstock City Church where my best friend and lifelong accountability partner is the pastor and I was like, all right, we're doing accountability and we're always honest about stuff. But this time was different because I said, okay, what if we did this? I'm reading this book by this guy who talks about this concept called radical sobriety. 
And it's not like stay sober your whole life, has nothing to do with substances. It's about living your whole life out in the open. I said, what if we tried to live in such a way where there was nothing, no text message, no split second, no inkling. What if there was nothing that needed to be hidden? And we were just so like in the light with each other in our confession that we helped each other live totally blameless. And I'm not saying it's sinless because I sin without even thinking about it. Trust me. But I'm up here preaching to you today about freedom. And my conscience is not gnawing at me right now, telling me all the things that I failed at and why I can't preach this message. I'm I'm not saying I've created merit to be able to preach what I'm preaching. Don't hear that. But I'm saying lies shut up within you when you walk in the light. And I'm in front of you right now, and I don't have anything. Like, I don't, you could follow me around, and I feel great. Like, oh, it's not all good. Trust me. But the freedom, here's Christian freedom. Here it is. Here's all of me. Here's my life. I got nothing to hide. And you start living like that, and you watch what God could do in and through your voice and your story where there's nothing hidden. And what he could do in your marriage, what he could do in your friendships. And I'm just, some of you who are like, oh, I got decades of bondage. I can't reverse it. Grace, community, you combine those two ingredients and you got nuclear gospel power for a transformed life. It's yours. So I want you to have it. I've, I've hinted at like what's happening inside of me. Started walking in some of this and I just feel like there's a few people and God wants to spread it at ACC like a wildfire. It shouldn't be rare for us to be free. It should be the norm. Look at what Jesus did. So this is a tough sermon to stomach. I realize that. You need time to process. Go ahead and get your communion out. Let's process for a second. Uh, if you don't have one, you can just raise your hand. Someone from our team will bring it to you. I actually need one. I didn't have one last time, and I want one. I'm on the front row over here. Um, but you can raise your hand. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you just want to sit this one out. This is where we remember the body and the blood of Jesus. This is where we remember that we've been healed. We remember that our sins have been paid for. And honestly, I just, I know I went, I went way over, and I just think it's okay. I, I, think you need, I think you need time to process. Let's sit in the presence of God. Husbands, pray over your wives. And if y'all want to turn the front into an altar where you can just come bow before God, if you're looking for freedom in some area, I know you got to walk through a lot of people to get there, but let's do that. Let's just take a breath before we sing one note. Take communion and let God speak to you on your own, then we'll come right back.